Welcome to the Lucky Titan Podcast. Here you will learn how to fill your favorite platform with tons of your dream customers from some of the world's top entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Josh Tapp. Now let's get started. What's up, everybody? Josh Tapp here again. Welcome back to the Lucky Titan. And today we're here with Glenn Hopper. Now, this guy, when they reached out to me, I was actually really intrigued by what he sent me. I think it was his agent that sent me his information. And it really sparked my interest because this guy comes at entrepreneurship and startups from a finance perspective. And his 20-year career of being with multiple startups, being an angel investor, doing some amazing things in the space. But I love how he comes at it from that angle of finance. I know a lot of you, a lot of the questions we get from you guys are like, how do I actually you know, financially manage my company because if there's no cash flow coming in, it doesn't matter if you're making millions and you're not profiting, you're not moving. So I'm excited to have Glenn here today to really talk with us about this, to share his story and get us going here. So Glenn, first off, say what's up to everybody and we'll hop in. I'm going to do this just because I've heard some of your other guests. I'm going to completely just blow professionalism out of the window and I'm going to say, waza, waza. Perfect. That's what we need. <laughs> uh, most everybody knows this. They watch the show. I have zero professionalism. So you're yeah. <laughs> totally welcome to that. Oh, good. I'm in the right place. Then. You're in the right place. We're your people here. I mean, I never show up with a suit, man. I'm either in a hoodie or a, in a t-shirt. People know that about us. Okay, Glenn. So I want to ask you first, obviously, about that epiphany moment for you. So at what point did you realize that startups were your jam, that they were your place? Yeah. I mean, it's for me, I was in the Navy in very early in my career. And when I got out of the Navy, finished business school, I had a couple of different paths. And I thought I was a journalist in the Navy, which is a strange profession to have, but it was, it kind of led me into marketing. And my, I, I honestly was, didn't even know that existed. So I'm glad yeah, yeah. it doesn't anymore. They've actually done away with the job. I guess they outsource it, but it was cool <laughs> while it lasted. Yeah. So I was getting out of the Navy and I had my master's in business and I was looking at two, well, actually three career paths. One would have been, this is in the late nineties. One would have been, I could have been the editor of a newspaper for their online website. So this is, you know, still pretty new web 1.0, definitely. So I could have stayed in journalism, gone that route. I could have gone to work at a marketing agency. The last one was there was a telecommunications startup that only had, I don't know, a hundred employees at the time. They were, I didn't know anything about telecommunications at the time or startups. But when I went for the interview, they talked about an equity position and they were calling everybody partners. And it was, this was in dot-com bubble era. And so it had the cool factor that the other jobs didn't. As a finance guy, you normally want to be conservative in everything you do, but it's funny that I can be conservative with financials, but with the business choices I make, I'm just like degenerate gambler going from one, <laughs> one uh, uh, startup to the next. But it's, you know, you only go to the ones you believe in, you only do the ones you believe in. And back then I didn't even know what to look for, but I knew it was a cool opportunity and there was an equity and to do something fun. And really once I got in there and I watched it grow and you know, back then I was employee number 90 something, or I, I can't remember exactly what it was. I was in that first hundred and you saw their employees come and you just, you wore your employee number, like, you know, badge of honor that you were here early in the trenches and right. watching it grow and the feeling of creating something from nothing and watching it go from burning money like crazy every month to watching individual markets become EBITDA positive and then cash flow positive and then watching the whole company make that transition. It's just, there's nothing, there's no other career like it that I can think of. Yeah. It's such a fast paced, cool environment. Uh, you know, the marketing guy in me says, Hey, you made the wrong decision. You should have been in a marketing agency, but <laughs> I think it was a great decision for you because it led to such an awesome career in startups. And you know, startups, I think that term has become kind of perverted in the time. I don't know if that's the right word, but corrupted, I guess, in the, over the years, because everybody thinks they're a startup now. And then it's like, just because you started a business doesn't make you a startup, you know, do you mind kind of delivering? 
delineating that for us of like what actually a startup qualifies as? Yeah. So that's funny. I mean, if you, so if you and I opened a nail salon and it was our first month of business, are we a startup? I mean, technically, right. yeah, because we, it's a new business. We don't have any customers. We don't. Because we started up. <laughs> yeah. We started up. And then, you know, then there's small businesses that, you know, are, you know, restaurants, nail salons and all that. And then there's, I think this sexy startup that everybody wants to be part of is a tech startup of some kind, but it's, you know, the last two businesses I've been in are technology companies. We do cool stuff with machine learning and have a, you know, intellectual property and, you know, do some cool things, but they're also sort of transactional businesses and they're not going to have that, you know, when people talk about startup, they think of something that a venture capitalist would invest in and that right. just, you know, they're looking for that hockey stick growth and all that. And that's, you know, sort of the Silicon Valley kind of thing versus, you know, if you have an architecture firm or a nail salon or similar to what I do, you can be a, technically you are a startup, but if you're in this band and you're not looking at that exponential growth and you're not looking at even M&A activity or going in to raise money from private equity, then you're kind of just a small business and small businesses can grow organically. They could grow other ways. So I've been on both sides of it. I've been in user-driven through startups that we're not going to hit any money, make any money unless we get that exponential growth. And then I've been in the side that's just a grind it out from retail or from technology that I am now. So, but whether you're a technical startup or just a new business that's just started, there's a lot of similarities in that you're both trying to figure out your processes, how to do things, how to best service the customer, how to stand up from your competition, how to make money. So yeah, there's, I mean, there's ones that are going to have great returns that people invest in. And then there's ones that are, you know, probably can be more of a slog, but in my world, I kind of, I'd still call them startups. I don't, you know, it makes the owners feel better. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of more of like a status thing. I feel like. The yeah. Thing. Yeah. And I, I want to just ask you this because um, especially in our world, right? A lot of the people who are listening to this show were agency owners or we were a coach or something. Right. And we're listening to this show going, okay, well, you know, I didn't get venture capital funding. I'm bootstrapping this, you know, and I bootstrapped it to half a million dollars a year, but I'm just kind of curious your take on this because if you're bootstrapped, I'm just going to delineate this, right? So like as a tech startup, right, you're getting all of this funding from a VC or something, right? So the first year or two of your life is like begging people to give you fat chunks of cash, right? Then you get $10 million and you've got to hire a CFO to manage that for you so that the cash doesn't go away and then, or doesn't just disappear. But then what happens is 99% of the time they're blaming it on the CFO because there's no money left in the company went under, right? But then on the flip side of the coin, you have the people like us, right? Who are those agency owners who are bootstrapped and everything. How should we be seeking capital to put ourselves in a position and then using that capital to actually come out successful on the other end of things? Yeah. So agency, that's a tough one. I mean, you're, you're not going to get a venture cap. You're not going to get VC attention for an agency because it just, it's not going to have that, that exponential growth. You know, they're, they're gambling, hoping to hit one out of 20 and the one out of 20 has to pay for all the ones that tank. And you're just, as an agency, you're not going to grow like that. Private equity. So we could get really deep down both. I mean, I could get really deep down these because this is the world I live in. So you'll have to reel me in if I go too deep, but yeah, so okay. there's two things to look at. One is private equity and one is debt financing. So, and I've, the last couple of companies I've done have had some of both debt financing, you know, going to your bank is tough because if, unless you have certain, you know, you meet certain standards, they're going to want personal guarantees from you as a founder and, you know, and the entire management team, the business, they'll want personal guarantees on the loan. So if the business goes under, you're not only responsible for where you are right now, but you also have to repay the debt. So that can be a tricky situation, but they're, you know, banks are risk averse. They're different than what private equity or, you know, someone doing mezzanine financing or even what your, you know, friends and family would do in an angel round. So I guess for, if I'm specifically talking to agencies that have truly bootstrapped that are not coming from a trust fund or great wealth that they have in their, in their back 
background, you figure out, you know, the time to get money in for agencies is not when you have a minimum viable product. It's not when you have forecasts that show, hey, I'm on a path to profitability. You're not going to get anybody interested in putting money into you until you actually are profitable. And, you know, until you've shown you can do whatever it is that your organization does and you can perform well. I think that if you are organically growing and you've stabilized the business, this is a great time for someone like me to come in and I kind of thrive in this startup to scale up area where you say, okay, what could we do now to really grow this business more quickly? And I don't care if, you, if you're a nail salon, a car wash, an architecture firm, if you've got your processes down and you're doing things well, and you could replicate what you're doing on a bigger level, then you've got something to sell to a private equity firm. So if you say, you know, I'm in an ad agency and not this city, there are maybe there's the two or three top big agencies in the city, but then there's a lot of boutique firms that are probably, you know, they don't have any economies of scale. And, you know, there's maybe your market and maybe there's nearby markets where you could, if you can make the pitch that you can do what it is you do, and scale it up and replicate it, you could, that's when you could reach out to PE and say, Hey, I'm a consolidator. Here's why I've got great processes. I've got great margins. I've got a great finance team that looks at it. We know the thing, the metrics to measure we're a consolidator. Then you could go to a PE and they, they might get interested. And that's when you start building out a plan for what your growth is going to look like there. But if you're just, if you're grinding it out and you're bootstrapping and you're just organically growing, it's kind of, you eat what you kill, you know? Right. <laughs> that's kind of the, the world we live in with agencies, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason I asked that question, I'm going to kind of frame it this way, right? Is, is I constantly talk against this for agencies and startups and stuff, right? The things that we typically spend money on as agencies is we're trying to hire coaches and join group coaching programs and buy courses and things like that. So a lot of our revenue goes into that. But having done that, gone that route, I would say that is not the route you should be going first because I do think you need a coach, but you can get that by starting a podcast. I'm just going to throw that out there. Start a podcast, you're going to get plenty of free coaching and a lot of times you can actually, some of those people just say, I like you, I want to coach you and you can get a coach for free. So it's fantastic. But the big problem I see that we run into is we get caught in these like, well, I've got to make my brand look better. I've got to do all these different things that we've been kind of preached to when in all reality, like what you're kind of talking about is like that money really should be reinvested back into revenue generating activities, like direct revenue generating activities. When I finally realized that in my own company, I have completely stopped buying group coaching programs or courses or things like that because it just overcomplicates the process. When I could just hire an agency, they get me X amount of results. It solves a problem. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, no, I, I actually, you go ahead. <laughs> so I look at that though, and I say, as an agency, what are kind of those first few things that we should be looking at to, of, as far as where money should be put in order to increase that? Because like like you said, like I love the tagline that you sent to me, right? It's like how to prepare your business for hyper growth. And to me, my mind is going, where is the money going to enable that hyper growth? Sure. So as, uh, as someone who's bootstrapped a business, you know, it's hard to think about anything else when you're worried about how you're going to make payroll, how you're going to pay rent the next time. So, you know, those early stages where whether you're fully self-funded and or whether you have a friends and family round or whatever it is, you're looking at your burn rate and you're trying to reduce that and bring in the business enough that you can offset your expenses. So I think before, before you're doing any training or coaching or marketing, you know, whatever grassroots methodology you're using to bring your revenue in, you want to be as lean as possible. And this is where founders a lot of times are giving away equity in the company in, right. in lieu of pay because they can't afford what they need. You're wearing your friends out with favors. <laughs> 
you know, and, um, but I think that whether it is from what you invested initially in the company or from the income from the company, you need enough of a runway that you're not every deal you try to close, you're not thinking I've got to pay the utility bill in the background. So sort of having whatever that, that runway is, you know, that's step one is have your runway of cash. It at least gives you three months to breathe easy and really focus on the business and not be limited by you have to make whatever deal because you're desperate for income. So, you know, have that base there. And then moving from that, it's, you know, presumably before you started the business, you know what your addressable market is, you know, you might have a few leads of customers you can bring in, but you can't do anything once your product is nailed down, you can't do anything without customers or users or or whatever the case may be. So step one in the plan has got to be to whether it's a good marketing plan or a salesperson, depending on what it is, or it's you out there pounding the pavement, you know, buying lead lists or whatever the case is, you've got to figure out how to get your sales funnel going. So that is where the first investment is. And then, you know, as that's happening and depending on what product it is you're providing and what you're provisioning, then you can start focusing on improving operations. But in those early days, you know, you're going to cowboy your way through it. You bring on these customers and you're going to be sure that you're servicing them. And until you get that super fast growth, you can do kind of a white glove, white glove concierge sort of approach to it. You know what it is you do in your business. You know what your customers want and you're kind of going above and beyond because you want to steal them away from whoever else they were using. So you can do that cowboy solution approach early on. But as you grow and as that sales funnel and pipeline is shored up, then you can work on your operations, then you become more efficient, and then you become better and faster at providing your service. And you can do it less expensively so that you can reallocate that, reinvest that money again and again to keep growing. Right. I love that. And I have to highlight this because even with, so with my story, right? When we were starting our first company, I was in college. I had, people were telling me, oh yeah. So if if you really want to commit to business, you've got to have money. So pull from your 401k or maybe sell, like get a second mortgage on your home or do this. And I'm sitting here going, dude, I'm like 22 years old. 21 years old. I have no, none of those things. I, I literally have nowhere to pull from. I have a credit card with 10, I have a $10,000 limit on my card. And I've already used $3,000 of that, just learning how to do what I want to do in business. And and I remember for me, I, the solution always seemed to be, I was getting promoted all these ads of like, oh, I should buy a course or whatever, you know, and I'd, I'd buy the next thing when, if I had just been coached on what you just said, right? The first thing is invest in getting that sales funnel. Like it's a predictable revenue system. If you don't have sales, there's no need for a website. There's no need for all these other dumb things that you're going to spend 10000 hours building or doing if you don't have a, a deal coming through the door. So I, I love that you you make that, hey, number one. And then you kind of mentioned, I'm just kind of delineating this for people or, or aligning this for people. So you said it first, invest first in building a sales funnel. And then the second thing you said was improving operations. Can you expound on that? Yeah. So nobody goes into business thinking I'm going to create the most efficient back office (laughs) operations anyone's ever seen. They go into business because of the product of what they're going to provide to their customers. So, you know, in everybody, I've seen it time and again, those first customers are gold and you're so happy to have them and you're bending over backwards to make them happy and to provide exactly what they want. And then you're like going above and beyond, you know, and doing free stuff just because you want that, you want those evangelists early on. And And nothing wrong with that. That's actually, great approach. But when you, once you have a stable of customers in that steady pipeline and you look back, you realize, depending on what you're provisioning or how you're doing it, like maybe you were just managing all of your, the jobs you had to do in a spreadsheet or something, or in a word doc or just shared, you know, something on SharePoint that you're looking out and you think you realize you're reinventing the wheel every time you bring on a new customer and how inefficient you are. And you start thinking about all your time 
where as the founder, you end up, you know, you're out there doing the sales and you're actually doing billable hours or, you know, provisioning the service, providing the service. And then you've got to go behind and invoice it. And then, oh yeah, by the way, you've got to pay the bills and you've got to track your financials. And it's just such a mess. And when you look back at it and you're kind of catch as catch can as they come in. So when you stabilize and have that income, it's time to look, it's, you know, no entrepreneurs can do this. It's probably part of the reason 90% of them are entrepreneurs, but it's almost like an ISO 9,000 audit, which is just sounds horrible and dreadful, but it's, you, you look at what your business does and where the roadblocks are and who the gatekeepers are and, you know, what things are inefficient and you step back and you can apply every customer that you bring in to that process. And you think, okay, this is what I need to do. I need to get out of this these three different spreadsheets from tracking stuff. And, you know, whether it's, you've got a friend who's a developer, you can lean on to, uh, you know, give you a good deal on building some kind of API to connect some systems or a better way of, you know, just a little web interface for something to track. You, you start thinking that, and then that frees up your time to uh, it, like, just as you would reinvest capital from the business, you reinvest your time in what matters and, and keep streamlining that. And that really all getting that foundation right. So that then you are ready if whether you're, going to a bank and you have to provide more clear financials, you're going to a private equity group, you know, you've got this foundational piece in place and you show not only are you good at whatever your product is at delivering that, but you're good at the back office and you're good at business. That's when you're going to get the confidence or in someone to invest in. you. Yeah. And that's, you know, like you said, it's kind of the thing that nobody really wants to do, but it's, you're literally like speaking my story. And I love this because with, you know, we've built multiple companies at this point, but with this company, we're at about 750,000 a year in revenue. And it, we kind of came to this point where, like you said, we have all these customers and some of them that we've had for a year and a half now who, from like right when we really started this, this company, we're still doing things for them that we haven't done for other clients in over a year. And they're paying us less than existing clients. And I remember just kind of looking back at that about four months ago going, we, we do not have like a standard operating procedure in this company. <laughs> like we'll do anything if it pertains to their podcast, you know, and about, I, I want to say three to six months ago, we really started hammering that down. And it, I thought it was going to take a lot of time, but, but I remember us just sitting down and writing out like a workflow, just saying, okay, when a customer requests an order, let's just call it that, what happens? And how much time is spent on each of those tasks it took me 20 minutes to write it down. I remember just seeing that made me realize, oh, if we just change two things, three things, that's going to flow so much simpler. It's not going to cost us any more money. In fact, it'll save us more money. And the process is, is much smoother for the client. And just doing that, and we've been, I've gotten so addicted to setting up processes in my, biz, my business. It's like my partners don't really love it because that's all I'm doing <laughs> is <laughs> building systems, right? And as I love that you bring that, I was like, hey, I build that sales funnel, then focus on the operations. What would you recommend once you kind of have both of those things in place, right? Because a lot of the people listening here are probably at that stage where the systems are getting pretty well optimized. Yeah. So it depends on, you know, there's some things that, you know, in order to provide the kind of service you want, you're going to be a white glove, small operation. You know, some founders think I have started this business. I can control this. I can handle X number of clients per month, per day, you know, whatever their metric is. And I don't want to get bigger than that. I've figured out if I get up to this level of customers at this level of income, I can take this much out of the company and I'm good with that. I get to own my own business. I call the shots. I love what I do. And then, and then it's just a matter of keeping to trim those efficiencies. But what even business owners who maybe are, they don't have an immediate plan to sell that I've worked with. They always know that, you know, somewhere down the line, 
that there could be an exit opportunity. So I think you always have to plan as if, as if you're going to sell. So even if you're not going to go to a private equity firm and you're, you're not looking to buy the two small boutique agencies down the street and the one, one town over run the business as such, because you're going to get more efficient that way. And you're going to be able to squeeze out more money out of the business. Even if you just stay flat in where your revenue is and the more you can streamline and automate on the back office side, the more time you can focus on doing what you love and what you're there for. Right. You know, nobody likes to sit down and calculate hours and do payroll or, or pay vendors or, you know, generating invoices for a founder can be fun because at least then you're thinking, man, this is going to be income coming. <laughs> but yeah, so I don't, you know, out, but then conversely, if you really are looking to grow the business and and try to get some kind of exponential growth and get a, a multiple over what you have, then it's time to really evaluate what you have, put together a business plan that is not just you know where we are today, it's where we're, we are going to be in two to five years and how we're going to get there and building out financial models. And even if you're not going to raise money, it's good for you to see that. You know, as you think about this year, we've got inflation for the first time in what, 20 years? I mean, factoring in stuff right. like that, if your materials that you're provided, if, you're, if your rates are, are going up, things to think about when you're planning the business. So it's, you know, it's kind of like doing your taxes. It's a, a necessary evil. But if you have done good forecasting for your business based on where you are and, you know, you can see, can I afford to hire that admin? Can I afford to hire another marketing person here or whatever? So I think really just nailing down the efficiencies and starting to run your small business, like, you know, not like a mom and pop, but like a larger business. So, uh, you know, you talked about trying to avoid classes and you and I are fortunate enough to that we have finance backgrounds, but if you haven't, it's worth learning how to read a PL. And, you know, I don't know, probably most startup businesses are using QuickBooks, but they're probably, you know, maybe they've got a bookkeeper, maybe they just jam some stuff in there once a quarter and then hand it over to their accountant and hope for the best at the end of the year. But QuickBooks, there's a reason that it's in, you know, uh, just about every small business in the world. It's because it does have functionality that could really expand for someone who's not a finance person. You can right. start thinking about your balance sheet, your income statement, your cash flow, and and start planning the business that way. Yeah. And, and I, I would actually completely agree. I think there's a time and a season for it because like, even for me, I've been doing my MBA in the evenings and I think it's hugely valuable. And it's not because, it, you know, I'm going to use it to get a job or anything like that. It's helped me to understand how my company runs and how to scale a business. And, and yep. I would actually recommend it for everybody to actually go get a real actual education, even if it's just something you're doing in the nighttime so that you can become an affluent business owner. So you can grow multi-million dollar companies instead of just, you know, a million dollar company. So Glenn, but first off, let me tell everybody, Glenn wrote a book. If you've been loving this, um, what we've been talking about here, he's given some really solid actionable steps today. And I hope all of you will look at that and apply it. But he has a book called Deep Finance, which you can get pretty much anywhere, right? It's basically like on Amazon and everywhere, right, Glenn? Oh, yeah. Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble. Love it. Anywhere you buy books. Anywhere you buy books. So yeah. gra- go grab that book. It's called Deep Finance by Glenn Hopper. So guys, make sure you go check that out. And you can also check out Glenn at glennhopper.com. And Glenn, just to kind of finish this one off, can you give us one final parting piece of guidance? Yeah, let me think. I'm going to go... Uh... I'm going to go metaphorical on my last. Let's do it. <laughs> on my last. So, and it's, um, and it's not going to be on just when you're starting a business. It's going to be on the area where I usually come into a business. So I read something a few years ago that I thought was, and I wish I'd saved it because uh, I'm going to butcher the details of the story, but I think it was at 
Berkeley and California. They had some new construction and instead of pouring the sidewalks around the construction and then just, you know, directing people, uh, you know, this is where you walk to get to this building or whatever. The architect that designed this building said, let's not pour the sidewalks. Let's just have open field and people will walk the way that makes the most sense and they will carve a path. <laughs> and then wherever we, wherever the people carve a path, we're going to go back and put the sidewalks in. So this really stuck with me and I don't know why, but it just seemed, it seemed so natural and unforced. And I think about that in business all the time. So I talk about founders are amazing people to have the creativity and the energy to create something from nothing. And I think, and I've, I've been victim of this myself on a couple of businesses I've founded. When you start with limitations in mind, it can really hurt the product. So I think you need to have that blue sky business formation, whiteboarding, everything, and everything's perfect. If you've got the why and you've got the product and you've got the thing you're passionate about, focus on that first and then start as you bring on customers, as you bring on users, whatever it is you're doing, exactly what you did, look at the paths you're taking and then turn the paths that organically came out of it into the processes for the business and that ends up making way more sense than trying to develop processes out of the gates. So for whatever that's worth, that's my advice. That's go first with uh, your cool product, follow the natural path to provision and, and deliver that service to your customers, and then automate from there. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Lucky Titan podcast. If you learned anything from this or any other episode, make sure you rate it and share it with another entrepreneur who could help. Thanks again, and I'll catch you on the flip side.